There are online quizzes for just about everything. Lately, I'm fixated on this one. I think it's tailored for medical school students. It tests your ability to diagnose heart conditions by listening to heartbeats. That is the sound of a healthy heart. And this is the sound of Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, talking about hearts today, getting to the heart of it, straight to the heart and soul, serious as a heart attack. Among those who do experience heart attacks, there are higher rates of depression and post-traumatic stress. Cardiac patients can be haunted by memories of a heart episode or depressed by the lifestyle changes they have to make to protect their health. So it may seem like a no-brainer that people with poor heart health should be monitored for mental health as well. That's what Rachel Annunziato thought, anyway. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham University and a clinical psychologist at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens. And that's where she helped set up a program to provide mental health screenings for cardiac patients. Depression is, is pretty established as a correlate of medical illness, and particularly so with cardiac disease. Post-traumatic stress disorder is something a little bit newer in the research as being a suggested correlate of medical illness and, and also now being established as a, as a risk factor of, of going through cardiac disease. And so we thought, since these are the two things that you, you see the most in the literature as being prevalent amongst cardiac patients that we should screen for these first and foremost. And these are people, these cardiac patients, these are people who, have they all had heart attacks? It could be folks who have simply hypertension and they're being monitored. Many of them have coronary artery disease or heart failure, and that's why they're coming to the, the cardiac clinic. And I'm wondering how prevalent exactly is depression, is post-traumatic stress, in these cardiac patients. You see a lot of numbers thrown out there in that regard. Um, you see from about maybe 10% up to 25%, 33%. We, in our patient population, we've been seeing closer to, to one-third of patients screening positive for symptoms of depression and of post-traumatic stress. And before you guys got started with your program, was there a, a kind of a common explanation, a common assumption as to why? I think that in terms of folks who've had a heart attack, the explanation was that a heart attack fits nicely into the trauma model, which applies to post-traumatic stress disorder, that a, that a heart attack is a life-threatening, sudden event, um, and then that, that would qualify as criteria for the type of thing that then triggers this onslaught of PTSD-like symptoms. For depression, good question. It, 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 it's probably that um, cardiac disease becomes a chronic illness, and it's something that requires ongoing management. And we know that, that diseases like that, um, another example is diabetes, that there's a, there's a higher risk of depression than the general population, lightly because of the chronicity of the, the illness and the requirements of the illness. Because you have to change the way you live. Exactly. Afterwards. And um, you have to take medications and you have to, to go for frequent medical appointments, have to have lab work frequently. So, so it does change your lifestyle pretty significantly. So you're at Elmhurst. You know that there's a high rate of depression, of post-traumatic stress among cardiac patients. You're on a cardiac ward. You say, 
we're going to give these people mental health screenings right off the bat. But it proves to be a little bit more difficult than that. Exactly right. So that's what we've been doing, that um, we know that these two things are quite common. So we want to start identifying folks who, who could benefit from services to address these things. And we thought, you know, the hard part is finding measures that um, have, have good properties across cultures. And so once we did that, the two measures that we chose have been used with folks from a variety of different backgrounds. So we thought, hey, that's the hardest part, you know, now that we have these two measures selected. We have them in multiple languages. Now we can identify folks who need help and connect them to services. And so that's what we did initially. We um, partnered with psychiatry, which is just upstairs from cardiology, and folks who were screening positive. We were referring them upstairs for a free consultation to see what potentially could happen next, and nobody was going. In fact, no patients who were referred in this pilot test of our program uh, followed up on their referral to psychiatry. Zero. Zero. They just didn't go upstairs. Nobody went to uh, to a follow-up visit. So, you know, us in terms of treatment integrity, we're thinking, wow, you know, the whole purpose of this protocol is shot if uh, if nobody's following up, you know. And this is actually one of the um, the drawbacks of, of screening programs that um, you could come up with a successful mechanism for screening, but it's not considered a successful screen if nothing happens afterwards. And, and we didn't want to be one of these programs who come up with this effective way to reach patients, but then nothing happens afterwards. And so we decided we had to come up with some sort of change. And when what we were able to do is have a psychiatry staff member come into the cardiology clinic to deliver services right then and there. And we were thinking that perhaps the, the convenience, erasure of stigma attached to seeing a, a psychiatry professional in a psychiatry clinic might be eradicated by having them come into the cardiology clinic instead. So what kind of results did you see? Much better. We had, um, at that point, 75% of all patients who were referred followed up. Statistically, this was highly significant. So this was really exciting that this simple change could lead to such a great difference in, in folks receiving a successful referral for mental health services. I read the report. I read this part of the report, and it said it wasn't just that we had a psychiatrist in the office. The psychiatrist wasn't always there, but just that we were referring somebody to a psychiatrist on medical grounds. That's what we thought. The provider was not there at all times. So it wasn't just a matter of receiving the referral and being able to go right next door at the same moment and speak to somebody. This was somebody who was only there a couple hours a week, but embedded in the medical clinic. And so that's why we think this perhaps worked, that, that seeing somebody under the rubric of medical care felt more comfortable than seeing somebody in a mental health clinic. Because of that stigma you mentioned. That's that's what we suspect. One particular patient comes to mind who was surprised that he screened positive on one of the measures and was really apprehensive of having a mental health chart opened. And we explained to him that, you know, even if he sees somebody in cardiology, he's still going to have a mental health chart open. But he said that this was more comfortable to him, though, to come into cardiology and see somebody there as part of his comprehensive cardiac care than going specifically to a mental health clinic to see somebody. And then you find that these mental health screenings were actually not only necessary, but sometimes lifesavers for some of these patients. 
Yes, that was the other piece of this, that one of the screening measures, the the one for depression, has a question about suicidality. And if patients endorse anything besides, no, I never think about this, we had to figure out a way to remedy this quickly. And so for any patient who did endorse any level of suicidal thinking, um, they had to be evaluated right away by either a mental health professional or a cardiology clinician who's been trained to do a suicide screen. And so we did find four patients who were suicidal and had to be taken to the psychiatric emergency room for urgent evaluation. Besides those two, you had a number of people, something like 14% reporting that they did have thoughts of suicide. Yes. And as this program has has kept going, there's been additional patients who've been identified as suicidal because of it. And I think another benefit of this program is that um, the cardiology clinicians have become more attuned to suicidality because of it. And so now it's not just the screening tools that, that help alert them to these symptoms, but they're also asking these questions more routinely, which is really exciting. Do you have any idea of how new this kind of approach is? Screening for depression in primary care had become fairly commonplace by the time that we started. But screening in specialty care had not become so widespread yet. And definitely screening for post-traumatic stress in either primary care or specialty care was pretty unheard of. And so we were certainly piggybacking off of some of the folks doing it in primary care. But but I think what was different about what, what we were doing is we also captured post-traumatic stress, which we knew was as common, if not more common, than depression. So we certainly wanted to capture those folks as well. But doing this in specialty care had not been done yet. And given that cardiac patients had been so widely studied and and it's known that these symptoms are so common, it's it felt like an appropriate thing to be doing. Now, post-traumatic stress is something I think of when I think of a war veteran, a rape victim, a car accident survivor. It doesn't spring to mind when I think of somebody who's survived a heart attack. What's the connection there? That's a great question. I actually, uh, I teach uh, behavioral medicine here at Fordham, and we were grappling with this uh, just last week when we were talking about um, um, post-traumatic stress in medically ill patients. A heart attack is actually closer to some of the things that you just mentioned. A heart attack is something that's life-threatening, um, something that certainly afterwards folks can experience elevated arousal, which is a part of post-traumatic stress, avoidance of reminders of the event, which is another part of post-traumatic stress, as well as intrusive thoughts or intrusive recollections of the event. So all of these things that have been established for things like for rape, for for folks who've, who've been in war, for folks who've been victims of a terrorist attack, all of these things, a heart attack can lead to the same sequelae. What, what is that? Symptoms. More highly volatile vocabulary words after the break. You're listening to Fordham Conversations. talking with psychologist Rachel Annunziato about her experience monitoring the mental health of heart patients. It wasn't long after Annunziato began collecting data that she got a better sense of the lasting mental effects of a heart failure episode. 
the typical sorts of things I hear described by patients are a fear of it happening again. And what if it happens in a situation where I can't control what's going on? So for example, what if I have a heart attack on a subway? Sometimes folks are so anxious about leaving their homes because they're afraid it'll happen again. Um, Or folks who feel pretty anxious much of the time, folks who don't like to come to medical appointments because it reminds them of the experience of having a heart attack. The most extreme situation and potentially um, most dangerous is folks who avoid taking their medications because it reminds them of the medical illness or the the traumatic experience like a heart attack. So now the data is telling us that medication non-adherence in cardiac patients is correlated with symptoms of post-traumatic stress. You say that trauma is relative. What do you mean by that? Um, In my view, what what's traumatic for one person may not be traumatic to another person. And so when I, as a clinician, am assessing for post-traumatic stress, I'm looking at, you know, for this particular person is, for example, having a liver transplant something that's leading to the set of symptoms that I know is associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, even though um, for somebody else it may not be the case at all. This might be a positive experience or a neutral experience. And so um, it's, it's you know, it's, I guess it's perhaps easier to assume that somebody who's been in one of these classic situations that you mentioned before would experience these symptoms. And for medical illness, maybe there's more spread in terms of who um, is going to go on to have a traumatic reaction or not. But I, but I do feel like for folks who have significant medical needs, it's worth investigating if they're experiencing these symptoms because it's something that we're learning across illness groups is pretty common. If trauma is relative, and it's something that definitely needs to be taken care of, is it is it reasonable to to consider putting to putting psychiatrists in all kinds of departments in a hospital? You, you know, some hospitals are starting to do that more. For instance, for children, that's something that's become more common. So, for example, many pediatric oncology programs now have a psychologist in the clinic, presumably because those kids are at higher risk for depression or symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and their parents as well. The data suggests for kids, the, the parents are also um, at higher risk for these symptoms. So it is something that's becoming more more widespread. With, with transplant, it's something that for both children and adults has become more common. Before you implemented the program at Elmhurst Hospital, what was the protocol? Were people referred to the psych ward or were they not referred at all? Well, what happened previously is that if, um, if a clinician identified a reason to refer a patient to psychiatry, they would do so. Um, Or if a patient requested it, they would do so. But there was no formal process for identifying reasons to refer somebody to psychiatry. So it really varied by clinician. If if a clinician was kind of attuned to this, then probably that clinician sent more folks versus somebody else who, who wasn't actively scanning for those sorts of things. And whether or not this spreads to other hospital centers just depends on who picks it up. I mean, it's not like it can become code, but... Well, actually, one of the exciting things that just recently happened is the American Heart Association, looking at this and, and, and lots of other data as well, has made it one of their recommendations that screening for depression should be routine in cardiology clinics. So not yet post-traumatic stress, but depression should be something that all cardiac centers screen for. So that's now one of their um, practice guidelines. So certainly not code, but 
but a pretty strong endorsement for doing this. So do you feel more attuned to trauma just in your everyday life, you think? I think it's something that I I probably think about more so than if I wasn't doing this line of research. Like, for instance, um, when I read a newspaper article or see something on the news that's happened either nationally or internationally, um, you know, right away I I am thinking, you know, wow, how specifically is this going to affect the people involved? I wonder if um, mental health workers are involved um, in in working with these folks. Um, You know, certainly after uh, something like Hurricane Control, Trina, my inclination is, is, you know, oh my goodness, we have to get down there and start identifying who needs specific resources. Um, you know, are there, are there symptoms of post-traumatic stress that are going untreated? So, so I think in that sense, I probably am more attuned to it than otherwise. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Rachel Annunziato is an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham University and a clinical psychologist at Elmhurst Hospital Center. We've heard a little about the lasting effects of heart attack as a form of trauma. Now we're going to switch gears a bit to talk about other heart-related trauma, this time heartbreak. Heartbreak is one theme of the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations. The book's villain is a woman named Miss Havisham, a character whose story is bound up in the scars of heartbreak, pain she suffered herself and inflicted on others. I talked with English professor Kathleen Erda to get a close reading of Miss Havisham. Okay, top literature villains. Uh Does Miss Havisham make the list, or is she kind of like your basic, your high school literature villain? No, I think Miss Havisham would definitely make the list. So if it's about 1860 Mm -hmm. and I'm walking down the road in some anonymous town in England and Miss Havisham's house comes into view, what kind of house am I going to see? You're going to see a place that looks abandoned. It looks dark, you know, kind of a ruin. Charles Dickens describes a dismal house of old brick. The courtyard out front has long fallen into disuse. Grass grows in every crevice, and the wind whistling through actually makes it feel colder right here than out on the street. The first floor windows are covered with iron bars. Up on the second floor, the windows are completely boarded up. And that's where Miss Havisham is, sitting in a dark room with only the glow of wax candles to light her. She's seated, um, I think, at the uh, at her, you know, what would basically be her vanity table. She's very oddly dressed. Essentially, she's got what looks like and what is a yellowing wedding gown on. And it's basically kind of, you know, falling into dust literally on her body. She's got one shoe on, one shoe off. She's kind of got uh, various things that she was either intending to put on or, or uh, you know, put on all around her. A long veil, flowers in her white hair, jewels on her neck and her hands. There's a bouquet heaped on the vanity table. These things used to be white, but now they're withered, faded to yellow. Basically, what happened was that it was her wedding day, and she got jilted. Dumped in a letter. She received it from her fiancé while she was in the middle of getting dressed. And her response to that was to basically try to stop time at that moment when her heart was broken. Every clock in the house is stopped even Miss Havisham's wristwatch. It reads 20 minutes to nine. She's decided to stop time, and she's determined to do it. We're seeing all this through the eyes of Pip, 
the main character of Great Expectations. Introduce me to Pip. Who is this kid? We first meet him as a very young boy. He mysteriously um, gets called to Miss Havisham's house. And one windy evening, he makes his first visit. Through the cold courtyard, inside the house with its boarded-up windows, and up to Miss Havisham's room with the flickering candles and the faded wedding clothes. And so what Pip sees is her, you know, many, many years later, okay, still at that very moment, okay, having kind of tried to freeze it in time, if you will. How many years later? I think it's um, 25 or 30, maybe. So she's old. She's old, yeah. And in fact, Pip's first vision of her, uh, when he first sees her, he's, he's terrified, he describes it like he, there are a couple of very striking images that he uses a wax work, like a wax figure that he'd seen, I think, once at a fair or a skeleton. Um, he talks about the fact that there are these these legends of, uh, you know, archaeological digs, you know, in which someone comes comes into a tomb and sees a body completely preserved in its clothes, and then the body, you know, kind of falls into dust at that second when the air hits it. That's kind of what Miss Havisham reminds him of. From walking down the long, kind of dark hallway and going up the stairs, you know, in the dark, you know, with, you know, only a candle lighting you, um, this, this neglected old place, and then coming into this, you know, absolutely bizarre scene. It's a horror movie. It is like entering another world. It's her world. And it feels like a nightmare. There's more horror in the next room. Is it a dining room? Okay, it's a it's a dining room with a huge with a huge table and there's something on the table and Pip can't figure out what it is at first. It's not clear at all. Um, because this this huge thing in the middle of the table is covered with cobwebs. He starts to see these black things coming out, and they prove to be little spiders kind of scuttling around. So it's this kind of, you know, massive thing. And Miss Havisham eventually tells him, "This this is my bridal cake. Okay, so she's got the cake on the table. Not only has she tried to you know, leave everything else, you know, say in her dressing room, the same, okay? But the cake has been decaying. In a way, she doesn't view that time has gone forward for her. She recognizes that time is going forward, you know, in the world around her, but she's kind of gotten off the ride, if you will, okay? She's decided, I'm not gonna keep going, okay? I'm gonna stop at this very moment that my heart was uh, betrayed and broken. And here's where one woman's heartbreak starts to have a ripple effect, a tsunami effect. She adopts a baby girl. Yep, she adopts a baby girl. This baby girl's name is Estella. How to Become an Evil Villain by Dr. Charles Dickens, Chapter 1. You know, have a companion, have, have something to kind of give attention to. But then Estella proves to be very beautiful. I mean, she's just endlessly alluring. Miss Havisham takes young Estella into her home and raises her to be a kind of professional enchantress. That's Miss Havisham's goal. She brings her up essentially to be without a heart. 
She's almost like a puppet master with Estella. You could you could call her almost Miss Havisham's revenge on on men in particular. But Miss Havisham's view of love from the very beginning, though, is uh, a little bit extreme. You know, even before she was betrayed, the way that Miss Havisham loves is, in a sense, too much. Okay, that there's too much uh, maybe masochism. Before she was a jilted bride, she was deeply in love, maybe too deeply. During her courtship uh, with this guy, people kept warning Miss Havisham, you know, be a little careful. Don't, you know, keep giving money to him. Don't keep, uh, you know, don't give everything over to him. But that she was so passionate and she was so willing to kind of abuse herself in this relationship that uh, she, you know, shut everybody else out. At one point, Miss Havisham lays it all out for Pip. She says, uh, real love is blind devotion, unquestioning self-humiliation, utter submission, trust, and belief against yourself and against the whole world, giving up your whole heart and soul to the smiter, as I did. What has happened is that, you know, Miss Havisham thinks of love as, you know, destruction, as complete self-annihilation. You know, she makes an idol of her heart and of the fact that it's broken, right? She keeps talking about her broken heart as if it's the worst thing in the world, which, of course, for her, it is. Okay, but there's, there's something very, you know, evil about the fact that she kind of idolizes her own suffering in this way to the uh, exclusion of everything and everybody else. Everybody else here is Pip and Estella. Estella, love magnet and well-trained ice queen, and Pip, decent guy, who grows to love Estella and is heartbroken when she doesn't love him back. And all this plays right into Miss Havisham's plan. But what Miss Havisham doesn't bargain for is that the daughter she reared to be heartless is also heartless toward the woman who raised her, toward Miss Havisham. Estella doesn't really seem to love her. That's not something that was part of the plan, <laughs> exactly. And Miss Havisham sees for the first time what she's done. Her heartbreak some 30-odd years ago has caused the heartbreak of Pip. And this moment of sympathy starts to break up a little bit, um, this kind of you know, desire she has to, to freeze everything. After Estella has married an absolutely terrible, terrible man, an oaf, Pip, of course, is absolutely heartbroken. He kind of can't believe it. Miss Havisham calls Pip to her and actually apologizes. She actually asks for his forgiveness. I mean, this is an amazing moment of, of redemption, really. And they kind of come to an understanding. Miss Havisham promises to do Pip a favor, helping out a friend of his, as it turns out, and Pip comes to see Miss Havisham from time to time. She's even older now, but not quite so icy. She's thawing. She's been in a different room for the first time in a while. She's in a different room. She's sitting by the fire. Pip leaves her for a little while, and when he comes back, he looks at her for a moment. She's just sitting by the fire, and then all of a sudden, he sees this great flame leap up, and can start to consume Miss Havisham. You know, she's, you know, literally 
burning to death and he kind of leaps on her he's got this great big 19th century you know great coat on and he starts to press out the flames in the process kind of burning his his hands and he's able to put out the flames but she's very ill after this she's really been self-consuming you know burning up inside for so long it makes total sense that you know, it's not quite spontaneous combustion, but it's almost like that. It's almost like, well, of course she would eventually burst into flames. Like there's just, there's something so right about it, you know, even though it's horrific. I know so. it's a great image, but mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, she she, yeah. says, she asks for forgiveness. She mm-hmm. repents. Yeah. And she doesn't, you know, yeah. Dickens doesn't let her get outside or get some vitamin D, go to the gym. <laughs> Well, you know, it's darker. Um, Some would say in in a certain sense, more realistic. I think the really great villains, you can kind of, you can kind of see, you know, something in them that reminds you of yourself, you know, and and that's part of what's so scary about them because you think, "Uh uh-oh, I don't want to go in that direction. (laughs) I haven't ever sat around with you know English professors and said okay let's name our top 10 villains but she would definitely be on my list and like any great villain I think part of what makes her so powerful is that you can see how she gets there Kathleen Erda has a PhD in British literature she's a professor at CUNY's Bronx Community College And that wraps this week's Fordham Conversations. For past shows, you can download Fordham Conversations as a podcast from iTunes or check out our archives at WFUV.org. If you don't have a date, celebrate. Go out and sit on the lawn and do nothing. And you may notice the absence of a familiar voice. Nora Flaherty is leaving Fordham Conversations after almost four years as its host. You'll still be able to hear Nora's work on WFUV's Take 5 and Words and Music. And to fill Nora's very big shoes, it takes two hosts, one for each shoe. Myself, Mary Wilson, and Robin Shannon. You can tune in two weeks from now to hear Robin Shannon's Halloween episode of Fordham Conversations when she speaks with Andrew Valentine about his new novel about vampires. It's called Bitter Things. Until then, I'm Mary Wilson. Have a great week.